Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. is, what should I do about me? How do I make me a better version of me? And that's not a bad thing, right? How do I get slimmer? How do I get stronger? How do I get smarter? How do I get out of debt? But today I want to try to focus our attention on a bigger, broader question. And it might be a little bit threatening, okay, and that's good. I'm actually going to introduce the question today, and then we're going to come back to it in a few weeks. Because I think we need to, we really need some time to kind of sit with this and think about it. Um, in fact, I would love for those of you who are in small groups to just discuss this, this question for a little bit. Um, and to introduce this question, I'm going to read you an entire chapter of the Bible. Okay? It's from the book of Nehemiah. And um, Nehemiah, if you want to go there, you can, you can start turning there. It's the first chapter we're going to read. And Nehemiah was an actual Jewish, Jewish person who did, who did an amazing thing. And this is a, it's a fascinating story because there's, there's no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah, which is found in what's called the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, is really a story about hard work and discipline and vision. So to set up this question, I'm going to read you the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, But before that, a little history lesson, okay? This this takes place after what's often called the Jewish exile. Uh, The Jewish exile happened right around 600 BC. The Babylonians invaded Judah, and if you kind of think of modern-day Israel, um, there's kind of the top half and the lower half, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They in, invaded what was the southern kingdom, or Judah, and they basically kidnapped a bunch of people from there. And if you remember the story of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, any of those guys, this was the time when they were taken from Jerusalem and taken to work for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so, so for about 70 years, the nation of Israel just shuts down. Uh, temple worship shuts down. They kind of go out of business because they had been, they'd been conquered by the Babylonians. So for about 70 years, the, 70 years goes by, then the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And Cyrus the Great decides, hey, why are all these Jewish folks scattered all over the place? So he made a proclamation to everybody and said, hey, if the Babylonians took you out of your homeland and sent you somewhere, go home. Just go home. Everybody go home. So everybody was able to migrate back to their nation of origin. So thousands and then tens of thousands of Jewish, uh, Jewish people migrated back to Israel to kind of crank up the economy, get the temple going, and all that. But it didn't go so well because they had been gone for so long and so many of their, their best and brightest had been taken and basically kidnapped by the Babylonians 70 years prior. So they were having trouble getting things going. And the economy stalled, the city's a mess, and... Other people have moved into that region, and all these, these Jews are coming back, and it, it's just not going well. And this is where we meet Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a Jewish man. <clears throat> we don't know if he's, he'd ever even been to Israel. Uh, we don't know if he's ever been to Judah. We don't know if he's ever even seen the city of Jerusalem. Uh, when we meet Nehemiah, he's working for the king Artaxerxes in Persia. Uh, all we know is that Nehemiah is in Persia working for the king, and he begins to journal his story. And it's a fascinating story. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the first chapter of Nehemiah, then I'm going to ask you this question, then we're going to talk about it again in a few weeks. Okay? Any questions? Okay, good. 
Okay, so here's, here's how it goes. Uh, ready? You can follow me. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. I think that's how you say it. Probably has a ch in there. Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, the citadel. Sorry. Susa was essentially the primary city. Uh, they didn't really have capital cities, but it was the, you know, the capital city of the Persian Empire. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came from, with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now remember, all these people are migrating and emigrating back to their homeland, and so he's asking about how that's going, right? Because remember, these are families that have been displaced. So these guys come to see Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, who's maybe never even been there, is like, how's it going? I mean, you probably got the temple thing going, right? Are we a nation again? What's happening? How's it going? Verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Nehemiah, it's not going really well. It's terrible. He goes on, he says, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Which basically means we have no defense. Uh, We're in a no-man's land. People come and people go. It isn't safe. There's all these other cities. There's all these powerful people. I mean, people are moving back, but things are not good. And then the next verse is very powerful. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. You see, for Nehemiah, this wasn't just news. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, hey, too bad. Too bad for you guys. Here's a check. You know, good, God bless, good luck, because I live in Susa. I work for the king. I know where every one of my meals is coming from. I know what I'm going to do day to day. I'm safe. I'm raising my family in the most powerful, most, most wealthy culture in the whole world. Sorry about Jerusalem, guys. But uh, see ya. Wouldn't want to be ya, you know. That's not his response. When he found out what was going on, his heart was broken and he wept. He says, I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he journals his prayers that he prayed. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. Now Nehemiah is reminding God, okay God, you keep your promises, right? I'm just reminding you, you keep your promises. And he uses the word covenant because God established, he established a covenant with Israel. And how he's going to say, um, now he's going to say back to God what God originally said to the nation. He says, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Because in the Old Testament, God had set up this somewhat, somewhat conditional relationship with Israel and, uh, that went like this. Here are my laws. If you keep my laws, you get to live in your land. If you break my laws and abandon me, if you break my laws and are no longer a light to the rest of the world, then I'm going I'm to take your land away from you and you're going to be sent to other nations around the earth. So he says, verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Then he does something interesting. He says this, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. He's like, I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers. We've all sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He's saying we deserve to be thrown out of town. We deserve to be thrown out of our land. We broke the agreement that we established with, with our forefathers long ago. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, 
Now, and now he's going to quote God. He's going to quote God to God. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Which is exactly what happened. That's why he's in Susa, not back in, in Judah. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then check this out. Then, through, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make their name, my name, dwell there. Because Israel was God's nation. The city of Jerusalem was precious to him. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's saying, you remember the whole Egypt thing, the Moses thing, the plagues, let my people go, all that stuff? I mean, you went to great trouble to redeem your people from Egypt. And now we're not in Egypt, but we are scattered all over the place. And so once again, God, could you, would you be willing to redeem would you be willing to bring your people by your great strength and your mighty hand back? Verse 10, or verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Then he asks for something specific. He says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now here's, here's what he's about to do. Nehemiah, who's got him made, okay, he even says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. He says that last. He's got this great job. He brings the king his wine. Okay? His job is to taste wine for the king to see if it's poisoned, really. It's a great job with really only one downside. He may, may have to drink poison. But this is it's like an amazing job at the time. He's living the life. He's got, he lives in a palace. He's got everything he wants, everything he needs. He's in daily contact with the most powerful person on the planet. And he's about to go to King Artaxerxes and say, King Artaxerxes, I need an indefinite leave of absence. I would like to leave my cushy job. I would like to leave this incredible environment that you created. And I would like to go to Jerusalem and help my people rebuild their city and reestablish their presence in the land. This is risky. People don't ask the king for favors, right? The king does all the asking. So not only is it risky, even, even if the king says yes, <clears throat> it's this huge sacrifice for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah's heart was broken and he felt compelled to act. So here's the question. And I don't expect you to have an answer today. All right, it's okay. Here's the question. You ready? Everybody say we're ready. Okay. Here's the question. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? When you look around your community, when you look around your neighborhood, when you look around this world, what breaks your heart? What is the one thing you just can't get off your heart or your mind or your thoughts? And it just, just sometimes goes there. And when it does, it's so disturbing to you that you try not to think about it because you tell yourself, like we all do, well, I can't do anything about that. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. Nothing's going to change. I don't know anybody. I'm a nobody. I don't have any resources. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too middle class, I'm too busy, I'm too disconnected. But I hope God would send someone to do something about that because that's a really big problem. And I can't even think about it for very long because it breaks my heart. Is there something that breaks your heart? It's a dangerous question. And instead of going into the year asking the question that most people ask, what can I do about me? What should I do about me? What if we ask the question, what should be done around me? 
Because the truth is, and I think we can all agree with this, if you really want to become a better person this year, then do something this year that makes the world a better place. There's an old Latin proverb that says, what man is a man who does not make the world better? Because you know, and you know this too, but the people that we admire, the people that we tell our children about, the, the biographies that we read, the people that truly inspire us are not people who really are able to maintain their ideal weight, right? They're not people that got out of debt for the most part. I mean, that's good. It's important. And some of you need to get out of debt, and some of you need to eat your 12 vegetables a day or whatever it is. Do all that stuff, right? But listen, that's not what truly inspires us. What inspires us are the people who've made the world a better place or have made someone's world a better place. Because nobody's going to change the whole world, but everybody has the potential to change somebody's world. And some of you have the potential to change a slice of the world. And all of us have the potential to find someone whose heart is where our heart is and join them in the grand adventure of making a difference in the world. Now, if you don't do this, let me just predict 2019 for you, okay? At some point, you're going to look at something or hear about something, and it's going to break your heart or grip your heart, and your defense mechanism is going to go, somebody needs to do something about that, and it's the president's fault, or it's the Congress's fault, or it's the PTA's fault, or it's the school system's fault, or it's the tax commissioner's fault, or it's the preacher's fault, or it's somebody's fault. At some point, you're going to be watching TV, and somebody's going to talk about something that grips your heart, and you know you're going to mute it, and you're going to do commentary for the rest of your family, right? You know, listen, kids, let me tell you what's going on in the world, right? Here's the thing. As long as we're blaming, ain't ain't nothing changing, okay? Blame. Listen, blame is not a strategy for changing anything. Blame is how we avoid changing things. And if you're a Christian... Let me, be, let me be more specific, because that can mean so many things. If you're a Jesus follower, and by that I mean, if to the best of your ability, and none of us get this perfect, if to the best of your ability you are committed to living your life according to what Jesus taught, then you must be actively involved at some level in your life and at some place in our culture bringing about change, transforming something. Because people who actively follow Jesus make things better, period. They just do. You can't actively follow Jesus and not make somebody's life better. You can't actively follow Jesus and not make the place where you live or the place where you work, the people you're with better. It's impossible because of what Jesus talked about and because of what Jesus modeled. I mean, Jesus taught over and over again that devotion to God is measured in terms of devotion to others. Jesus completely broke the temple system. The temple system was... You go to the temple, you say, hey God, I need your help, you sacrifice an animal, you try to get God's favor, and then you go live your life. And it didn't really matter how you treated other people as long as you were good to God. And Jesus came along and said, we're done with that. If you want God's attention, then pay attention to how you treat other people. Because every person is made in the image of God. And people matter to God, and so people should matter to us. And you can't go to the temple and go through some routine, and you can't go to church on Sunday and go through some routine and somehow win the favor of God. Because God's very, very interested in how you treat other people. Devotion to God is measured in terms of devotion to other people. Love for God is equated to love for others. So consequently, when you follow Jesus around through the Gospels, 
Everywhere Jesus went, people were better off. He didn't just feel compassion. He acted compassionately. And here's something important. This is important. Jesus taught that people have inherent value, not ascribed value. This is huge. People have inherent value, not ascribed value. Jesus modeled that there's not a pecking order. There's not, well, I'm a Roman and you're not a Roman, so too bad. Or it's, I'm a slave owner and you're a slave. It's not, well, I'm a man and you're a woman. It's not the color of the skin. It's not how much money you have. In the religious system Jesus showed up in, if you had a lot of money, the assumption was it was because God gave you a greater value than people who had less than you did. And Jesus came along and he, he conducted ministry and he communicated without any question that everybody was valuable to God. That was a huge shift in the thinking of the first century. That men, women, and children have inherent value according to Jesus. Tax collectors, Gentiles, centurions. People were constantly shocked at the people that Jesus served. Because in their minds it was God, and then there was an order. And Jesus completely scrambled it. Because Jesus knew that every single person you come into contact with is made in the image of God. And so to be like Jesus, to live our lives like Jesus, there's no first class and second class. There's, there's just people for whom Christ died, period. And so throughout the generations, Christian men and women, in the name of Jesus, have, they've built hospitals. Not for Christian people, but for people people. They've built orphanages. Not for Christian children but for children, children. They built shelters not, not for homeless Christians, but for people who are homeless. We do medical missions trips, not, not to take care of people who say, I'm a Christian, but for people who are sick. History, I think, will look back and say it was the Christians, it was the church that brought sex trafficking to the forefront in the 20th and 21st century and said, hey, this is an issue that needs to end. And now all, the, all of culture has come around that issue. But it's been the Christians all around the world that have drawn attention to this horrible, horrible thing that's slowly being addressed all around the world. Christians were in the middle of the abolitionist movement. Christians were in the middle of the civil rights movement. As you look at the world, you can see that where Christianity has spread, its redemptive effects have elevated women and set them free in many ways all over the world. It's always Christians that say, wait a minute, To follow Jesus, I can't treat people like they're less than me. Because my Savior never did that. When he came to die for sins, he didn't come to die for the sins of just the Jews or just the Gentiles or just the wealthy people. For God so loved the world. Jesus taught that we don't assign value to people for any reason. People are inherently valuable. Consequently, our hearts can be broken by human need. Regardless of where... Where those people live, what their status is, how much money they have, or what color their skin is. Now, the other interesting thing about Nehemiah's story is that Nehemiah's broken heart was by divine design. And one of the things that Christians have always believed is that history is linear, right? That something's happening, that it's going somewhere, that it's moving in a direction. That God works in history towards specific goals and specific ends. What Nehemiah didn't know was that when God stirred his heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall, it was part of the sequence of events that had started before him and would go long after him. He was playing a critical role, 
but he had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to give in to his broken heart. About 60 years before Nehemiah, a little more history, about 60 years before Nehemiah, God stirred the heart of a man with a very great name, Zerubbabel. God stirred Zerubbabel's heart to say, go back and start rebuilding the temple. About 14 years before Nehemiah's heart was stirred, God stirred another man's heart named Ezra. He said, go back and teach the people the law. Get the temple operating. Teach the people the law. And then he stirred Nehemiah's heart to say, Nehemiah, go back and get them organized. Reestablish my city. Imagine this, because they had no idea. But all of that was in preparation for what would happen 444 years later when the final Jewish prophet, priest, and king we know as Jesus walked into that very city, went to the temple, and declared to everybody there who he was. And all that history we find in the New Testament, this was, this was the setup for that. God sent his son into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves because our sin broke his heart. And Nehemiah's decision to embrace his broken heart was part of what God was up to the whole time. And he had absolutely no idea. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to embrace the burden God has put on your heart. I think for some of you, your future is more impactful than you could ever imagine. But in order for you to experience it, you've got to face up to what breaks your heart. And you're going to have to take some risk, and you're going to have to step out. And here's the thing, okay? If it's what you need to do, I think you should lose weight and get out of debt. I really do. Do those things. But there's more to you than a body and a balance sheet. So what breaks your heart? And this doesn't mean you have to become like an activist. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't, in fact, I'm, I'm not advocating that you do anything irresponsible. But if there's someone you could, but is there, you know, someone you could attach yourself to? Is there an organization that you could get involved with? Is there somebody you could become associated with? Is there something you could do that could become an outlet for that extra time and that extra energy to something that has stirred your heart? This is how great things happen. This is, this is truly a New Year's resolution. Because if you really want to be a better person, do something to make the world or do something to make someone's world a better place. You might say, well, Chris, I don't know. I'm involved in all kinds of things. There's you know, 20 things that break my heart and I'm busy. Here's the thing. We're going to sit on this for a couple weeks. During that time, ask God and yourself that, that question. God, what breaks my heart? What could I do about what breaks my heart? And what could I do with who I am? That's why I love the, the, the way the first chapter of Nehemiah ends. He tells this whole story, and then he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. In other words, this was the opportunity I had. This was the influence I, ha- I had. And so consequently, I took who I was and what I had, and I addressed the thing that broke my heart. If you're not sure, that's okay, because we're going to sit on this question for a few weeks together. In fact, I'll tell you what I would love. For those of you who are here and you meet in a small group, as I said at the beginning, I would love for you to, to, to talk about this in your groups this week. If you just ask the question, what breaks my heart? And what could I possibly do about the thing that God has stirred my heart to do? Because this is how amazing things happen. And this is how you set yourself up to wake up from a year from now and look back on the most amazing year you've ever had. Not simply because you ate better than you've ever eaten before, 
but because you feel like your heart, your life, resources are in sync with what God has created and called you to do. Amen. As we finish up here, the ushers are going to pass out communion if you guys want to start doing that. We take communion here at the upper room on the first week of every month. And when we take communion, there's a, there's a few things we do. Um, first, we look, we look to the past. It's a reminder that we once gave our lives to Christ, and it's still His. He is still in control. We also look to the present. We are living in the new covenant. That's such good news. It's now. You are in it. Right? We don't have to bring an animal to church every week and slaughter it. Thank God. Jesus was once and for all the sacrifice that established a new covenant. And so you're in it. Communion is a reminder that presently my life is governed by him. And then third, we look to the future. First <clears throat> Corinthians 11.26, it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion reminds us that there's something more up ahead. It's not just a past event. It's not just a present hope. The one who came and died and is absent in the flesh is coming back in the flesh, physically to rule in the reign. And until then, we get to be his hands and feet. C.S. Lewis says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. I think you become most effective when you live right on that edge. I'm responsible now, but Jesus is coming. Communion reminds us of that. So as communion is passed out, let's remember the Lord's goodness to us. That when his heart was broken, like Nehemiah, he acted. He came to save us. Amen. As communion is passed out, feel free to take communion when you're ready. Um, I'm going to pray as you're taking communion. And after, you're free to go. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to even talk about this. Thank you for preserving the story of Nehemiah. Thank you for preserving the history around it. Father, thank you for your concern for us that in some cosmic, amazing way that we can't imagine, our sin broke your heart. And you didn't just feel bad for us. You acted on your broken heart, and he sent your son to pay for our sin. So, Father, give each of us wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard and then give us the courage to at least think about it and allow you to stir our hearts. For those of us who are a little bit afraid to think this way, just give us the courage. Give us courage. I pray that we'd find the time this week to create some margin to just sit on the question and that you would do extraordinary things through us average people who are willing to say as Nehemiah, Here's who I am. Here's what I have. I'm making it available. Show me how to get involved. We just pray all these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Take communion when you're ready. Go when you're ready. If the ministry team wants to come up, 
If you'd like prayer for any reason, come on forward when you're done with communion. Amen.